Good morning, guys. Um, my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm a volunteer here at Venture Church, and uh, if you didn't hear uh, before you came in, uh, normally the guy standing up here is much more qualified. His name is Chris. He is our pastor here, but he is with his son on a camping trip with the Boy Scouts and just having a great time. And so um, I'm going to be kind of guiding us through the last bit of Hebrews that we've been in. Um, so I'm very excited to hear uh, just what God has to say for us this morning. But I don't know if you had the same experience that I did growing up, but growing up, my parents kind of uh, nudged me and guided me to do some things that maybe I didn't really want to do, uh, that I didn't really have on my radar, and maybe say things like, hey, you don't really know until you try it, or you might actually really like that, you might really be good at that, just go, just go try it. Anybody? You have that kind of experience with your parents? Uh, well, for me, that thing was uh, baseball. Um, I did not like baseball. Baseball was not on my radar. It's still not on my radar, and I still don't like baseball. Um, but it is the thing that my dad loved. He played football. He played basketball. He played baseball. He just, oh, come on, let's get, get into it. And so I did two years of Little League, uh, Little League uh, ball. Our, our team name was Trademark, uh, named after a local gas station. Um, so there's your first cue that it does not count or matter at all. Um, but uh, we were part of the Trademark team, and, uh, you know, it's a good experience. But, you know, I, I learned a lot of things uh, by those two years that I played Little League Baseball, and the first thing that I learned was this, uh, how much I do not like baseball. Uh, that was the first thing that I learned, um, and I'm just kidding, this guy's like, man, he hates baseball, what's going on? Um, the second thing I learned uh, was what position I really enjoy, and that is right field. And the reason is, is because, especially in Little League, it is rare anybody's going to hit a ball, so that's the place you want to be, because nobody's going to hit, and if they do, it's not going to right field. <laughs> it's like going by the pitcher or something like that. Uh, so that was my, my space, I just sat down and tried to find four-leaf clovers or something like that. Like that. I was that kid uh, growing up. Um, the, the third thing um, that I learned in baseball was this. Um, you can just shout at anyone, say whatever you want, it's fine. Um, everybody's fine with it. Everybody does it. You shout at the umpire, shout at the coach, shout at the players, shout at the people in the stands, and just, just say things. Like, all the time, the whole game, people were just shouting at everyone. And just for fun, um, here's a couple of things that people said they actually heard at games shout uh, directly to umpires. And you may have actually heard this. You may have actually said this. Um, and it's okay. Um, this is one thing said to umpires. Come on, up. That ball was so far outside, I had a hat and a coat on. Then you have this one. Hey, ump, turn around. You're missing a great game. <laughs> hey, ump, you couldn't call a cab. <laughs> this is my favorite one that I saw. Shake your head, blue. Your eyes are stuck. I don't know why that one. That was really funny. Um, but then you have things that were said to, uh, to players. You know, you're up to bat, maybe your teammate's up to bat, and you say things like, good eye, you didn't swing at a ball or whatever, and then you have things like, what are you swinging at? Because they swung and they shouldn't have swung at all. Those I got from my wife because she was actually the sports one that did really well. Um, but lastly was this phrase, and I'm sure you've heard it and you can complete it with me, is keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Man, what a good phrase. I mean, of all baseball, that's probably the, the best takeaway is to keep your eye on the ball. Because logically, out of all these, that's like the number one that makes sense and shouldn't really have to be said. But I mean, oftentimes we just get distracted. You get up there and you're like, oh yeah, okay, what do I need to do? Let's be reminded. And people just shout, keep your eye on the ball. It's a really, really good phrase. And it's just funny how many times, even in the midst of what we're doing, we just get distracted. 
and we lose focus of what the main goal is, what the main purpose is. And uh, this even happens in just normal day-to-day life. If you're like me, you could walk downstairs and in five seconds forget why you walked downstairs. Then you go to the pantry and you open it up and you're like, was it to get chips? Maybe, oh, there's some good chips. And you grab it and you go back up and you sit down and you have your wife look at you like, did you get the cup of water that we were going to get? like, that's what it was. Okay. And you go back downstairs like, just five seconds to get distracted. Um, our culture is so distracted. And you may not be that distracted like me, but overall, over the time period of the earth, our generation, our, just our culture, United States earth right now is the most distracted culture in the entire world, in the entire history of the universe. So let's face it, I don't know you, maybe I don't know you directly, but I do know this about you that sometimes we get distracted and we forget, and it's not maybe just in the little things, like what am I supposed to get when I go downstairs, Um, but maybe sometimes it's a little bit bigger things, and you forget why we're here, why we're here in this room, or why we're here in the city, why do we move here, Uh, why we're parenting this way, why we're married why we're single, why we're dating him, why we're not dating her, why we're uh, going to school, why we're working, why we're resting. We forget why we're staying, why we're going. And sometimes we just get distracted and we need somebody to tell us to keep your eye on the ball, remember the goal, remember the things that we're supposed to do here, whatever you're doing in life. And this morning, my hope and my prayer is that I can be that guy for you, that the book of Hebrews can be this book for you, that this church can come around you and be that community for you to remind you of keeping your eye on the ball. Remember what is important. Remember the promises. Remember the good things that God has for us, because oftentimes we just get distracted and we forget. And there's a lot of great things that God has for us this morning in the book Hebrews. So, you with me? You ready? Let's do it. Let's get it. Um, Let's dive back into the last part of the book of Hebrews. Um, uh, Let's start in the end of chapter 10. If you have a Bible, go ahead and pull there. If you don't, there are some great Bibles over there, the NIV um, selection. If you don't own a good readable version of the Bible, we always want to make sure everybody has a good version. I know there's great apps, but sometimes it's good just to have a good uh, just paperback or or a hardback to look at and not be distracted by. Um, Hebrews is uh, an interesting book. It's very, very dense. There's so much that the writer says in this book, and it's tough to kind of boil it into just six weeks, and so I'm going to do my best to wrap it up. Um, But we've been um, kind of doing this, this glide all the way through, and in week one, uh, Chris talked about how we serve a God who speaks to us. You know, especially the book of Hebrews was written to primarily Jews, to Hebrews, and so they really, really understood the first five books of the, of the Bible called the Torah. And so through that, they uh, remember all the ways that God has spoken to them. And so the main arc that this, this guy, this argument that the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is, hey, we have a God that speaks to us. There's gods out there that don't. There's gods that, out there that are different, but God speaks to us. We talked a little, about, a little bit about training wheels and how they're an excellent tool, but they're not the goal. <laughs> you don't want to ride a bike with training wheels as an adult. <laughs> um, you want to get, kick them off and maybe go over some, uh, some hills or something like that if you're into that kind of thing. Um, but it, it challenges us to be a new type of people in a new type of way. Week two, we talked about through chapters one and two of Hebrews that God communicated, us, communicated to us through angels. 
He sent messengers. He sent these angels down to communicate his message and his purpose. But now, the difference is, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is now he communicates through Jesus, through his son. And he continues on with that argument again. If you, if you, don't, if you weren't here throughout this or haven't read Hebrews, I highly recommend you take the time to read it. It's so good, and it really helps you understand not only what we're about to, to read today, um, but also just help internalize how good and unique our God really is. Um, week three, we talked about uh, chapters three and four, that God spoke to us through Moses and through the law. And it was complicated and different time, and God had a lot of rules and things, but Jesus, when he came down, he simplified the path. He funneled it down. No longer are all these laws you have to abide by, but, but the, the righteousness of Jesus that we live by and the live like Jesus in that way. Week four, uh, chapters five through nine, um, that God, in the past, again, we're looking all the ways God did talk to us. He talked to us through priests and through the temple system. And again, there was rules and regulations and things like uh, you had we, no longer do we have to go to Jerusalem to be in the presence of God. No longer is there this holy inner sanctuary where only the presence is and is shut off to everyone else. But now through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have access, direct access to the presence of God. And that's an incredible thing. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Uh, week five, uh, leading up to this week now, we talked about a hinge moment that is just building up and building up and building up, and we're getting to this climax moment where the story hinges, the writer hinges on this, this principle that we have had a God who has spoken to us in all these different ways, but now there is Jesus. He has died. He has risen from the grave. He has ascended into heaven, and now what do we do with that? How do we live and it's a very important piece for us to, to wrap up today. So he spends 10 chapters exploring that Jesus is greater than all that there is before him and all that there will be ahead of him, doing things that we cannot do for ourselves. So let's pick up uh, at the end of chapter 10. Um, we're going to be at verse 35. Um, so chapter 10, verse 35. Here we go. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And then he quotes two Old Testament prophets here. The first is Isaiah. Second is Habakkuk. He says this, for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And by my righteous, uh, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we, talking to the writer, the people again, his audience, the Hebrews, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So again, this is the hinge moment that we get into chapter 11. The, the writer is concluding that Jesus is who he says he is. He's accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish, but now we have a future hope in Jesus. But here's this, here's the hope. For in just a little while, he who is coming, verse 37, will come and will not delay. He's returning to, he's alluding to the return of Jesus, that we're in this, this middle moment in history. Jesus has come, he has died, he has ascended to heaven, and now we're in this this part of history before Jesus returns, and this, this wonderful place, and, and what do we do with that? So with that, he, he ends in verse 39 saying, uh, but to those who have faith, what is to mark God's people in this time? How are we supposed to live that mark 
is by faith. Okay, so not knowing what faith is, let's keep reading into chapter 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, let's stop right there. (laughs) Faith um, is one of those words often tossed around and kind of hard to grasp, um, and it's kind of hard to even understand really after you read that passage. It's a little bit murky. So when you hear the English word faith, what comes to mind? What words? Belief. Yeah, belief. Uh, maybe think of uh, uh, a belief or trust. Those words uh, kind of symbolize something of maybe that happens in our mind, something that we think about. Maybe faith is in our minds. So if I was to believe something or trust something, it would primarily happen through thinking, yes? That's kind of what we get here in this moment. However, if you read through all of chapters 11, which unfortunately we don't have time to get to today, you'll see that there's not a lot of just talking about thinking, but it's a lot of action. It's a lot of decisions. It's a lot of choices. It's a lot of movement, and it's a lifestyle. And every bit of the Old Testament story is moving through the lives of people that have acted out in the story of the nation of Israel, making really tough and difficult decisions. It begins in our mind, but it ends in a radical action of trust and obedience. So, um, an interesting thing when, when kind of studying this passage um, to kind of help wrap around this, this concept of faith um, is to read in a different translation. Um, I don't know if you guys have multiple or if you transition between multiple, I definitely encourage you to do that um, because each translation has its own take on what the Greek or Hebrew words uh, mean. And so, trying to translate into English from a different culture, a different time period, a different era, there's so many things to try to grasp to make it palpable for us to understand. And so, this is one of the passages where it really helps to change, uh, to change translations. And so, the translation of NLT or even the New King James, they both read like this. That same verse, Hebrews 11.1, 1, says this in uh, NLT or New King James. Now, faith is the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Your translation may or may not say that. We'll say it again. Faith is the reality of what we hope for and the evidence of things we cannot see. And in studying this and looking at some commentaries, uh, a lot of scholars really link to this translation a bit more because it helps exemplify the rest of chapters 11 a lot better. And so here's one way to say it, that in other words, faith is not just a mindset or an inner being, a confidence. It is those things. But it's not just an inner place that we sit where we're, we're filled with faith, but it's an experience. It's a reality that we live within that we get just a taste of, of what we're hoping for. Christian faith is, is not blind, of course. There's evidence to back it up with the Bible, and, but the thing is, is we can look back on all the things that God has done to see that He is faithful and live in that reality and that lifestyle. So, looking at verse 11, here's a good example. Um, Verse 11, again, just going through the story arc of the Old Testament. Um, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she what? She considered him faithful who had made the promise. So, Sarah's act of faith 
was considering him faithful. Of course, there is a mental state, but there's also an action that comes with that. She's looking back at all the things that God's done to lead them through this this weird place to become nomads, to start this family and do this crazy journey. And through this big call to, to start a nation while being barren, she's looking back and saying, God has provided in all these magnificent ways. Why can't he do it now? Why can't he be faithful now? So it's this lifestyle. It's not just an inner being in a place that we're, we're in just in our minds, but also that we act out. So um, as we continue on, uh, we're building on that into chapter 12, and I wish you could have stayed in that a little bit longer, but chapter 12 has a lot of really good stuff for us as we continue on uh, this morning. Um, let's see. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. <laughs> we'll start with, uh, with verse 1. So therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, again, going back to chapter 11, talking about all these people that have exemplified faith in magnificent ways. We're surrounded by these these fans, these people cheering us on, rooting us on out in the crowd. They're in the cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's pause there for a second. When reading this, often, especially before kind of studying uh, this passage, I would often put just as I'm reading very quickly, hinders and sin just in the same category, and you say, throw off everything that hinders so that easily entangles, or or sin. You kind of just think they're one piece. But the writer does something really good here that he splits it. The reason I think this is so profound is oftentimes we think the things that hinder us are only sin, only the things that hold us back from God, but the writer alludes to something really great here that is also things that aren't sin that do hinder us. And these could be really good things that we, we think that are, are good to have in our life because they're propelling us towards our career or helping us with our family or helping us with these things. And they're good things. It's not that they're bad, but they're hindrances. They're things holding us back from the ultimate thing. And so I, I love the phrase that often used is don't, ex- don't exchange good things for ultimate things. Let's think of the ultimate things and throw off those things that hinder us, that easily entangle us from the things that we need to uh, run towards. So we continue on, and the writer says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It just talked for chapters and chapters of faith and how uh, all these examples, and I love the, the point that this writer puts in here, is that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, often translated as well. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition of sinners. Love that phrasing, like like Sarah, considered him faithful. Consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So faith happens in our mind. It results in an action of, of radical belief and that God is who He says He is. He will do the things that He will say He do. And in those times where it's tough, consider Him who endured such oppositions. Um, I've been doing a lot of listening to podcasts and commutes. Anybody like podcasts? Podcast people? Yep. Nice. Um, there's one that I really enjoy called the Wild at Heart Podcast um, with, by a guy named John Eldridge. Um, him and his wife Stacy started this ministry out in Colorado Springs, and it's a wonderful, wonderful ministry just to help people um, psychologically. They have this whole um, 
kind of counseling part uh, that's really kind of how it birthed. But this podcast has really been a really good source of just nutrients for my commute because there's just many times where um, you don't want to just listen to music, but you kind of want to be in the Word, and so it's really good to, to listen to things like that. So I highly recommend it. Um, but um, the past couple of months, they've been having a lot of talk about this, uh, this thing going on just, just in the country and um, in the world, and it's just a lot of fatigue, uh, mental fatigue. It's, it's, a, it's a, like a plague going around, and they've used this word a lot, which really resonated with me, is that everybody is low on reserves, that before the pandemic, I know we don't ever want to talk about the pandemic anymore, but before the pandemic, uh, we, we had reserves. We had something inside of us that could push past some tough times to get us through those moments. And you had these reserves to dig into when you didn't have the strength to endure. But post this pandemic, now that a lot of people are continuing to operate out of low reserves, that the bucket we used to pull from for that energy or that patience just isn't there. It's dry and it's weary. And so I don't know if, if you're like me, I found this a, a lot more apparent even just in these past couple months where things that used to not bother me, just like, ah, uh, it's like a tipping point where it, my patience level is just a little bit thinner. Or you, maybe you get home at the end of the, end of the day and you're just a little bit more exhausted than you, than you normally are. You don't have the mental capacity to really make the decisions like you used to make. And I think it's, if it's not for you, I mean, I think it is some, something common across uh, just America right now, especially with everything going on in the world that we're just getting hammered by all this media. And there's so many times where we just get fatigued. And I, I love this last verse to help us in those moments that if you're there, the act of faith, I think just encourage you is to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus. What a good thing to remember, to, to drop those things that may be good things um, that aren't the ultimate things. Remove those that easily entangle us. But all of that is easier said than done, for sure. Um, it always is. And so a little bit of practical things as we go on. Um, let's skip down to verse uh, 9. Uh, the writer says this, Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. As a side note, um, I'm certain, especially in 21st century now, uh, this is really not that true um, for everyone here in this room. Um, so we'll just say this. You may or may not have had a guardian uh, that may or may not have disciplined you, and you may or may not have respected them for it. Um, so, okay, you get the point. Um, he says this, how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? See, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his what? In his holiness, in order that we may share in his holiness. So it's not just our acts of faith towards God that are part of this journey. Again, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the lifestyle of God's people after the ascension of Jesus and before the return of Jesus, acts of faith. But also there's something that God's doing as well. He's disciplining us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. We continue on a little bit. Verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be, there's a word again, holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
That's a pretty bold statement. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's a, that's a pretty big deal. That raises the stakes a little bit. That God's character and his very nature, nature is holiness. And if I'm racing towards Jesus, if, if I'm trying to be like Jesus, he's trying to make me more and more holy. And so if I want to see God, I have to share in his holiness. And that's kind of an, an intense thought, don't you think? In our culture, oftentimes it's, it's kind of hard to read passages like this, especially reading through the Old Testament. We have these, these tough moments where this is this hard line. There's a place where God's something really crazy. And even in the Old Testament of Mount Sinai and the rules that God has around approaching his presence and don't touch the mountain or you'll die. And if you read things like that, you're like, what do I do with that? Like, if God is so loving, like, why doesn't he just chill out, man? Like, why is he so uptight? Like, why is God like this just overarching thing with all this power and, and raw energy? And in many cases, our culture could look at that and say, that's just downright offensive. Like, why would God be in that way in his character? Why would we have boundaries like that? Why would God be so intolerant of us? Like, yeah, I messed up, but man, just, just get a break, you know? And so there's a way to help internalize this that has really helped me in, in studying this and, and heard from another pastor. And um, if you wrestle with that, just like me, um, hopefully this, this will help. So um, there's an object um, in everyday, day-to-day lives that we experience. Uh, you may see it, you may not see it, but you know it's there. And off in the distance, it's this burning this hot source of gas and energy and fuel that's just continuing to just explode and provide lots of heat. What is it? Pluto. I'm just kidding. It's the sun. Yes, you got it. It's the sun. Um, the sun in our solar system. The solar in our solar system. The sun is holy. It is set apart. There's nothing like it in our solar system. Now, of course, there's other solar systems and universes, and I get that. But right here, for this analogy, in our solar system, the sun is holy. It is set apart. Yes. Okay. Now, the sun is raw, burning energy. It is just the source of life, and the sun is 93 million miles away. 93 million miles away, that's the sun is. And if you step outside right now for a long time, and maybe you did this yesterday at the beach, you get burnt, don't you? Didn't that freak you out? Like 93 million miles away, and you just step outside for too long, and your skin gets burnt. Now, do you like the sun? I like the sun. I like to go to the beach. The sun's good, yes? Without the pure, holy, unique energy of the sun, life does not exist on this rock that we live on. There's no trees, there's no grass, there's no plants, there's no deer, no whatever. I mean, life exists because of the sun, right? So the sun is a good thing. Yes? Say good. Sun is a good thing. Nod? Yes? Okay, cool. All right. You're with me. <laughs> we all agree. Um, does this mean, though, that the sun is like your buddy? That you can like teleport to the sun and go have a picnic and, and roast some pizzas, if that's what you do on the sun, I don't know what you would do in this analogy, surf some fusion waves or something. Could you do that with the sun? No, it would incinerate you. It would obliterate you. And even just take it 2 million miles ahead, 91 million miles away, you're toast. You're gone. Does that mean the sun is bad? No. The sun is just doing the very nature of what it's supposed to do, which is to provide life and fuel for this earth and this place. Does that mean the sun is intolerant? No. 
So we can do all we want to protest and be mad and be like, dang, son, why you got to be so hot, man? Stop burning me. But the thing is, is the sun is just doing what it's supposed to be and be like, puny earthlings, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. But uh, then God shows up in his holiness. And oftentimes we look at that and we say, how could you, God? Why are you being so intolerant? And the very thing that sustains our souls and our lives, we push back on when he exposes how messed up we are and he shines light on things that how screwed up we are. And we get angry at him. Like, how could he do something like that? How uptight of God to do something like that? We get uncomfortable when we start pointing our fingers and say, it's it's your fault for this. It's your fault that my life is this way. And the challenge of embracing God's holiness is this is to entertain that perhaps, perhaps it's possible that the analogy is not that God is bad, but that I'm bad. I'm the one that's bad. Maybe you're the one that's bad. And what's coming up inside of us, that anger, that frustration of God revealing through his holiness these things that we're dealing with, he's actually putting his finger on something that I know is wrong, but I just want to do it anyways. And His holiness is revealing, it's disciplining us for our good in that moment. And sometimes we just want to go live a version of life that we call life, but God's saying, no, my holiness is here to reveal other things in you so that you can become more like me and in my presence because He can't do that. So just like it was read earlier in verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And at the end of the day, we have a decision. We have a choice to live for today for what we want or to live for eternity. That Jesus is coming to restore all things, to make all things new through his return on this earth And God is extending an invitation to all of us this morning to live by faith and experience his holiness and to be renewed by that, to not be fatigued anymore, but to be be renewed by his spirit. And Jesus came down and he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died so that we could be made holy and blameless in his sight. That's the beautiful thing about the story of Jesus, that he came down and he died the death. He took the sin of everything that held us back from God, that entangled us, and he put it to death so that we could become holy, that we could be in God's presence and receive his gift. What a beautiful gift that is Jesus for us this morning. And maybe you're here this morning and you're still wrestling with that and still wondering what all that means in, in life and what do we do with the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us in this way. And so my encourage, you, uh, my encourage to you is this, is to continue to press in to God's holiness. And when he starts putting his finger on that thing that maybe came up inside of you, and maybe as you read word and as you continue on, those things that feel uncomfortable to you, Maybe that should just ding the light that maybe that's the thing that God wants to remove from you that's actually hindering you and holding you back. It's my encouragement to you is to just let it go. Let it go. It's not worth it. It's hindering you from the very thing that God is trying to propel you to that you actually need because ultimately he is the sustainer and creator of life. So he knows best. And just like that kid... um, 
way back in the day, team trademark, two years of Little League. Um, I, uh, I never, ever swung the bat. I would get up to play, and I was just, I was so afraid. I was so scared. And most of the time, the guy at the pitcher's mound was like this, like this college athlete, this giant of a guy with like throwing like 95 mile an hour balls down. I'm like, man, I'm only nine years old. Um, it just was so intimidating. And there's so many times you get up there and you just don't want to swing. And sometimes you need someone in the stands just to remind you of, of what to do. You need someone on your side to encourage you. And there was this wonderful moment, um, I think towards the end of my second year, again, never swung, never cared. And my dad before a game was just like, I will give you $20 if you swing the bat. <laughs> just swing the freaking bat. <laughs> I want to see you hit a ball. And uh, so, all right, man, $20. Whew, all right, let's do this. So get up to plate, and uh, I don't remember the whole moment. Probably a couple balls went by because that's just how it goes. And I just remember looking at my dad. I was like, all right, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to swing. And I remember, I remember this moment specifically where I just, I leaned back and I swung. And that clean hit, that ding of that bat went off. And the ball went over the pitcher and over the second baseman and right before the center field. And I ran all the way to second base, and I was ecstatic. I was like, yes, I did. It was so awesome. It was just boy, such a wonderful moment. And I share all that not to say you should go play baseball and go swing a bat. But sometimes you just, you need to be reminded not only that you can do this, but you have a community of people encouraging you and are behind you to do this. That sometimes you're going to get up and it's, going to be, it's just going to feel afraid. You're going to feel this pain. You're going to feel something inside to, to keep you away from what the best things are. And you need a community of people like Venture Church beside you saying, keep your eye on the ball. You've got this. Keep your eye on the ball. Swing the things that are right. Let's, let's remove those things that hinder us. And so another encouragement I have for you this morning is not only to continue to come back, but connect with somebody. Dive into this thing better than I can explain it. Dive into the book of Hebrews and dive into it and see what God can do not only for your life, but for other people. Because if it is true, if it is true, I believe it is, and I hope that you do. If it is true that Jesus came, he died the death that we should have died, and he lived the life that we should have lived so that we could have eternal life with him, and that's news worth sharing. That's news worth embodying. That's, that's a lifestyle that we should live out of to not only be able to bring people alongside of us, but that we could experience eternity with the Holy One and all of His kingdom. I would love to pray for us this morning as we continue on with our time.